Well, hello, my friends. How's it going? Welcome to D&D Optimized, part of the D4 network. This is the show where each week we take a deep dive into one, sometimes two, specific character builds for Dungeons and Dragons. We theorycraft about them, we crunch numbers about them, all with the hopes of creating a character that is both very powerful, but also a lot of fun to play in-game. So, if you enjoy creating characters for D&D almost as much as you enjoy playing the actual game itself, or if you're just looking for tips or tricks, advice maybe, for a particular character that you want to build, then welcome home. This is where you belong, and I'm really glad that you're here, so thanks for being here. My name's Colby, and uh, I'll be your host. Before we jump into the build, couple of quick housekeeping items. For those who missed it, uh, an announcement about Tales of Anaria. Uh, the actual play games that we've been doing for oh, the last eight months or so, I have been hosting them here on the channel. We've decided for a variety of reasons, amongst them YouTube algorithm things and financial things, to move the videos over to their own channel. So that's kind of exciting. We're all actually happy about it. I think it's a good move, but I have a favor to ask. This is the link to the new channel. If you enjoy watching the shows, but you haven't gone there to subscribe yet, please do so. And even if watching other people play D&D isn't really your thing, I would consider it a big personal favor if you would go there anyway and click that subscribe button just to give us a little boost, a little head start so that the YouTubes can, you know, push us out to people who do enjoy watching other people play D&D. And even if you wanted to like unsubscribe a few weeks from now, once we kind of, you know, got the ball rolling, I'd be okay with that. That would be awesome if you could do that for me, for us, we'd be super grateful. Uh, I will put the link in the video description as well. And yes, uh, we have we have merch for uh, the Tales of Anaria and also for the uh, D4 network in general. Links will be in the video description for those as well if you want to buy a cool t-shirt or hat or mug or hoodie or, I don't know, the few other things that we have available. Check them out. Right, on to the show. So. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Will Wheaton, but I'm guessing most. He seems like a super swell guy. Great actor, great writer, fantastic human. For those who don't know, he seems to be famously cursed when it comes to rolling dice in Dungeons & Dragons. Here's a quote from the equally fabulous Matt Mercer from Critical Role on the Phenomenon after Will had been a guest on the show. He says this, I don't understand it. I heard about that in advance. I'm like, oh man, it would be kind of funny if you rolled really poorly. No, no. I had an existential crisis after he guested on Critical Role. Both times. I, <laughs> I will not touch him physically. <laughs> I don't want to go anywhere near the possibility of capturing what dark entity has cursed his numeric existence. Now, ever since I watched the Critical Role episodes where Will Wheaton uh, was guest starring and heard that quote especially, I've been thinking to myself, if I were to create a character for Will Wheaton to play, how would I do it? How could I build something that just removed as much as possible in a dice-heavy game any sort of you-need-to-roll-if-you-want-to-succeed mechanics? For me, the most obvious answer is to focus on spells that don't require an attack roll or even a saving throw, ideally, to work. My two favorites that fall under that category, Magic Missile and Cloud of Daggers. And so, I've been trying to figure out the best way to incorporate both of these spells into a single build to great effect. And the result is basically a modified nuclear wizard. What is a nuclear wizard, you may be asking. I'm so glad you asked. It's it's a somewhat like known build floating out there around on the D&D tubes that essentially involves finding ways to add lots of damage to the magic missile spell for big bursty Nova damage. And actually, it is a build that I have been wanting to do an analysis on here just to see if we both couldn't improve upon the concept a little bit, but also see how it stacks up against other character builds that we've done. Longtime viewers of the show will remember that when I first started this channel, one of my main interests, in addition to just exploring and creating fun, powerful builds, was to take like the known kind of best 
character builds for damage that were out there that people sort of talked about. Um, the, the polearm using Hexblade Warlock, the hand crossbow using Fighter, uh, my two first episodes, actually. And I'm guessing that I posted the cards there for those. And just see, like, both how far we could stretch the concepts for those character builds, but then also see what the damage from them actually looked like when you tried to account for chance to hit, uh, enemy armor class, etc. And then compare them to one another and to other character builds that I had created and had in mind. And the nuclear wizard definitely falls into like that category, right? And it's actually a little crazy to me that a year and a half into this YouTube adventure, I still have not done an episode on the Nuclear Wizard. So we're gonna remedy that today. So for those who are already familiar with the Nuclear Wizard, I might have a new trick or two to add to the concept as I try to stretch the concept for and in behalf of the wonderful Will Wheaton. And for those unfamiliar with the nuclear wizard, you're in for a treat. And so I present episode 74, the improved question mark nuclear wizard. And as always, check out the fantastic artwork by Randall Hampton, my good friend, who this time really went above and beyond to take the concept that I gave him and really just own it. And um, man, I hope that if for no other reason Will Wheaton one day watches this just to see this incredible character that uh, that Randall put together for and in behalf of Will. I love it. It's fantastic. Yeah, I don't have a lot to say about it other than I'm amazed. All right, let's jump in. At level one, we are going to start off with our class as a fighter for two main reasons. Constitution saving throw proficiency to help us out primarily with our concentration checks, among other things, and also heavy armor proficiency that we would not get if we multiclass into fighter later on. So, yes, when we first meet our character, I think that they are probably part of like the officer corps of an organized military. Their strength is not necessarily in their martial prowess, but they are very intelligent and charismatic, making them an excellent behind the front lines commander or maybe logistics specialist. But you know what? I think with this character, they're maybe really frustrated by the fact that they aren't necessarily a great soldier. They've had this dream of being an amazing archer in particular, or, or part of the uh, ranged attack force. Perhaps a sibling or parent or grandparent or something was an amazing and famous soldier, a crack shot with the crossbow. I'm gonna say, and I think maybe our character might have even inherited that crossbow with the expectation that they would follow in their family or friend's footsteps, but alas, despite all of their attempts to the contrary, their superiors have realized that their true skills lie not in battle. As for our race, I am going to recommend that we go custom lineage with this one. Yes, it's back. There is a feat that is really important to the build and we are a lot stronger if we can start off with it than we otherwise would be. And by the way, let me just give a shout out to one of the commenters that I had on last week's um, Knife episode. This is from YouTuber Sebastian and they said this, as a bit of a dissenting opinion from those that may be upset when you use custom lineage, and there's several of you out there, <laughs> I wanted to say that I heavily prefer it. Why? Because I can flavor my character as whatever I want. When a build is centered around, say, a kobold, it relies on the assumption that I'll be playing one when I might not like to play certain races in D&D very much. But anyone can make custom lineage into something they enjoy playing. I couldn't agree more, Sebastian, so thank you. I've seen custom lineage characters at our table as a half-dwarf, half-elf, a half-giant character, a sort of fire-water-genasi hybrid, like a half-orc, half-elf. Personally, I love the freedom that custom lineage gives you to kind of make whatever character you want for story purposes, and of course you get a great mechanical advantage to boot. I appreciate that many of you feel differently. You might feel like custom lineage is either unbalanced or not mechanically interesting when we just use it over and over, whatever, and that's totally fine. And sometimes there are other races that, for one reason or another, do, in my opinion, 
give for a particular build a mechanical advantage over what a free feat might offer, but that tends to be the exception to the rule, as most of you know. Anyway, it's okay if we disagree on this issue, and I just appreciated the sentiment, wanted to voice it, and felt like kicking the hornet's nest a little bit, I guess, so <laughs> feel free to tell me why I'm wrong in the comments. But as for that free feat that we're going to be getting here, I am going to go for telekinetic. This is absolutely the perfect feat for what I'm hoping to do with this character. First off, as a half feat, we do get to take a plus one in intelligence for us, which is awesome. Next, we get to learn the Mage Hand cantrip, which is invisible and cast without verbal or somatic components with this feat, so that provides some nice utility. Then, most importantly, going forward, as a bonus action, you can try to move one creature five feet toward or away from you if they fail a strength save against basically your spell save DC. Now, a creature can fail this willingly, so you can move allies, right? I have used telekinetic a lot in past builds, and I'm sure that I will continue doing so in the future. There's just so many great uses for character movement in D&D pushing enemies into places that they don't want to be, or moving allies out of reach of enemies without provoking opportunity attacks, etc, etc. And the fact that it has unlimited uses, only requires a bonus action, and bumps our intelligence by one makes it very, very strong. And a lot of fun, I think. As for our ability scores, I'm going to assume that we're using the point by method as always, and so I'm going to recommend taking 15 in intelligence, plus two from custom lineage, plus one from telekinetic, giving us an 18 right out of the gate, a 14 constitution, and then a 13 charisma and a 13 dexterity, which we're going to need for multi-classing purposes. I hate those odd numbers, but our hands are tied. As for equipment, I'm just going to recommend taking fairly standard stuff, you know, chainmail armor here, a hand crossbow for one of your martial weapons, and a shield. And yes, I am going to recommend heavy armor, even though we don't have a high enough strength score to not suffer the 10 feet move speed penalty we would take for wearing it. As a character who's going to be ranged, I'm not as worried about reducing our move speed as I otherwise might be. You could, of course, go with, say, a dwarf for your starting race and not suffer a move speed penalty, though dwarves, of course, only have a 25 feet move speed, so that's really only a difference of five feet, right? Still, the extra stats would be nice as well, and I think if I were playing at a table that gave a free feat as a house rule to everybody, I'd probably go dwarf here. I'm hoping that at some point down the line, maybe we can pick up some mithril armor so we don't have to worry about that move speed so much, but I don't think it's going to be a huge hindrance to this character. As for the hand crossbow, that's really purely for like character and story. I don't plan on using a weapon after level one. Feel free to take a heavy crossbow here for mechanics purposes, because it's gonna give you a little more damage. But regardless, we're currently like the worst level one character ever. With a plus one to our dex mod, we're doing paltry damage, so just stay alive until level two, which should hopefully be very soon. At fighter one, we do get second wind, which will give us once per short rest as a bonus action, a healing of 1d10 plus our fighter level. Nice little pick me up, especially for those of us that are weak level one characters. And then we get a fighting style and I would recommend the defense fighting style. We're not going to be using weapons after this level, like I said, and being hard to hit is going to be especially important for us, both for concentration purposes, but also we're mostly going to be taking levels in a D6 character class, so we need to be as hard to hit as possible. At level two, our character's latent telekinetic knack has started to maybe blossom into something even more potent. Perhaps you've met an important NPC who has helped you unlock the arcane potential within yourself. Or perhaps frustrated with your inability to become the skilled archer you and or your loved ones hoped you'd become, you've simply decided to leave the military life and instead have begun to dedicate yourself to the study of ancient magics in hopes that through the study of the arcane, you can unlock the ability to devastate your enemies and be an effective commander like you've always dreamed. Whatever your reasons, we're taking wizard levels now. And so, as a wizard at level one, we get spells first off. And as most of you know, wizards have access to more spells than any other class in the game. So naturally there are plenty of amazing cantrips and first level spells to take here. I think if I were Will Wheaton, I'd be sure to grab sleep 
as it's one of those this just works without any need to roll dice kind of spells. Um, it's great control. It puts targets to sleep based on how many hit points they have, basically. Just know, of course, that it doesn't scale particularly well, and so before too long, you're probably not going to get much use out of it, but for now, it's really great. The other one that I'm going to say that we have to take here, of course, is Magic Missile. I'm not sure if I've ever actually used Magic Missile in a build before, which feels a little crazy to me considering that it's such a long-standing staple of the D&D universe. In case you don't know, with Magic Missile, when you cast it, you get to fire three magical darts at an enemy, or enemies, you can split them up, within 120 feet. They all hit simultaneously, that's actually important, and each dart does 1d4 plus 1 damage. You don't need to roll to hit, they can't save against it, it just works. Unless they have the shield spell, more on that later. And so anyway, it's perfect for our purposes. Now, we need to be clear about how you roll for damage with Magic Missile. Rules as written. With Magic Missile, you're supposed to roll one die and use that same die roll for all of the missiles. Jeremy Crawford himself even clarified this in a tweet. Of course, your DM may want to do this differently, but this is an important thing to clarify with them beforehand, before we even start playing this character in their campaign. We'll go into why later on. Also, one great thing about not needing to roll to hit with this spell is that it's just as effective from close up as it is from long range, right? And we're likely going to need that later on as well. For now, Magic Missile is just kind of okay damage, but consistent, mostly foolproof damage, perfect for our friend Will. And for each level, of course, that you upcast the spell, you get one more dart. Also, at Wizard 1, we get Arcane Recovery, a simple yet powerful wizard ability. Uh, we get to recover spell slots once per day after a short rest, equivalent to half our wizard level, rounded up. So just a single first level spell slot for now, of course, but that scales later on as we go. None of those spell slots that we recover can be greater than fifth level. At level three, we would be a wizard two, and we get our arcane tradition, our wizard subclass. And yes, we're going with evocation. So yeah, our study of the arcane has begun to teach us how to truly unleash devastation on our enemies in battle. Not as a simple archer, but as a long-ranged, like magical sharpshooter or even artillerist, I think, when we need to be. As an evocation wizard, we get sculpt spells, which tells us that when we cast an evocation spell that has an area of effect, we can choose one plus the spell's level number of creatures to automatically make their saving throw and take no damage instead of half if making a saving throw would cause them to take half damage. So yes, we used Evocation Wizard and particularly Sculpt Spells last week with the Psy Knife build. With this build, I don't actually imagine getting a ton of use out of Sculpt Spells necessarily. I'm not really building around it, but of course there's no reason why we couldn't take advantage of it or shouldn't throw out a good area of effect blast spell if the situation is right. And this now, Sculpt Spells, will let us hit the most enemies possible with those area of effect blast spells since we can generally keep our allies safe from the spell's effects and then position it pretty much wherever we want to hit as many enemies as possible. It's great. At level 4, we would be a Wizard 3 and we get second level wizard spells. Tons of great ones, of course. Pick your favorites. I'm going to be saying that a lot with this character, but just make sure that you pick up, yes, Cloud of Daggers. I love this spell. It has a long and sordid history of being thought of as underpowered. And while yes, in many and maybe most situations, it is, I think, a little underwhelming, in the right hands and in the right situation, it can be very, very good. So with Cloud of Daggers as an action and with our concentration, we create a five-foot cube of magical whirling blades. A creature will take damage once per turn if they start their turn within the space or the first time that they move into that space. And yes, we have been told via sage advice that this means a creature will take damage even if they are moved into the space against their will. The best part, especially for our friend Will Wheaton, is that there is no save, there's no roll to hit, they just straight up take the damage. It does 4d4, and that's not bad, and then it goes up 2d4 for every level you upcast it, so it scales pretty nicely. So now we have our two, they just take this damage spells that we're going to be using throughout this character's career. 
And so, with those important spells in place at level 5, I want to take another level in Fighter, of course, because we are, after all, building for burst damage or nova damage, and as such, it's hard to beat getting Action Surge, which is what we get at Fighter 2. And so, yes, Action Surge allows us to, once per short rest, take a second action on our turn. And yes, this action can include casting a spell with a casting time of one action, even if we already cast a spell on this turn with our action. Let's review the rules because sometimes a lot of us get confused by how this works. You can cast a spell slotted spell twice on your turn using action surge so long as you don't also cast a spell, any spell, with a bonus action on that same turn. If you cast a spell with your bonus action, then the only spells you can cast for the rest of your turn are cantrips with a casting time of one action. So just don't cast a spell with your bonus action during your Nova round, and you're free to cast two spell slotted spells with a casting time of one action if you burn action surge to do so. Capiche? And so, with our important spells and action surge in place, at level 6, it's time for a third and final multi-class dip. So, you remember that crossbow that we inherited? The one that our great-grandpappy used to use to make a name for himself far and wide as the greatest crack shot the world had ever seen? Well, it turns out that there was more to grandpappy's skill than just a keen eye and fantastic aim. Turns out the thing is possessed. And now, seeing our great desire to be an incredible soldier on the battlefield and our own penchant for using magic to become such, it's reached out with an offer of additional power, like it did for grandpappy all those years ago. <laughs> So yes, we are taking a Hexblade dip. It's an important part of the Nuclear Wizard build, and I haven't done a Hexblade dip for months. So just relax, all you Hexblade haters. So as a Hexblade 1, we get a couple of things. We get Hex Warrior, which gives us proficiency with medium armor, shields, and martial weapons, which we already had. In addition, we can touch a weapon that lacks the two-handed property, and this is why I wanted to go hand crossbow over like heavy crossbow at the beginning, and we make it our hex weapon, meaning that when we attack with it, we can use our charisma to hit and damage instead of dexterity in this case. I don't actually anticipate using this much as our charisma score is no better than our dexterity score, but maybe once in a while if you're out of spell slots and for some reason we can't even use a cantrip or don't want to for story or flavor purposes or something, we can use our hex weapon. We also get spells, of course, as a warlock one. Um, there's plenty of good cantrips and first level warlock spells to choose from, so pick your favorites, but the only one that I'm really going to highlight here for this build in particular is Armor of Agathus. Both because it's a nice way to increase our survivability, but also, like Magic Missile and Cloud of Daggers, it just deals damage without any roll or saving throw. So. The spell lasts for an hour, it doesn't require concentration, which is nice, and when you cast it with your action, it gives you five temporary hit points, and then if an enemy hits you with a melee attack while you have these temporary hit points, they take five cold damage in return. No save, no roll, another Will Wheaton special. And the temporary hit points and returned damage does increase by five per spell slot that you upcast it, uh, which is pretty nice scaling. So, and, Remember that we can use our wizard spell slots to upcast warlock spells if we want. But then also, of course, uh, the real reason that we're here is for Hexblade's Curse. With Hexblade's Curse, once per short rest, we can target a single enemy as a bonus action and curse them. Thereafter, for one minute or until they die, all damage rolls against the target receive a bonus in damage equal to our proficiency bonus. It doesn't have to be an attack, it's just a damage roll. So remember, with Magic Missile, we're supposed to roll one die for all three darts, right? In this case then, we would roll one die, add one because the spell tells us to, and then add three for our proficiency bonus because we're a level six character now, if they're cursed, and then we apply that damage times three darts, if it's a first level magic missile spell, and that's now 6.5 damage on average per dart. Or I guess if you're Will Wheaton, who rolls a one on everything, that's five damage on average. Still decent. Also, if the enemy dies, we regain hit points equal to our warlock level, plus our charisma modifier. So, three. Lol. <laughs> 
All right, so at level six, it's time for our first damage report and everything has sort of come together for us now. Here's how it's going to work on our Nova round. First off, be warned that to make it work like I've envisioned, it will, uh, for this character, it's gonna require one round of setup. You don't have to take that setup round, but I think you get a little more mileage out of it if you do personally, especially in like subsequent rounds. So on round one, you put Hexblade's Curse on your target as a bonus action and then cast Cloud of Daggers on their space and then position yourself so that you are five feet away from them. We want them to move just out of the range of Cloud of Daggers toward us. On their turn, they're gonna take 4d4 damage from Cloud of Daggers, plus your proficiency bonus. Again, Hexblade's Curse does damage on all damage rolls. It doesn't have to be an attack. And then ideally, they will move one square out of Cloud of Daggers and up to attack you. On your turn, you would use your bonus action to telekinetically push them back into Cloud of Daggers, where they will thus take another 44 damage plus your proficiency bonus upon entering. And then you would hit them with a second level casting of Magic Missile, Action Surge, and hit them with a first level casting of Magic Missile. Each dart will do 1d4 plus one plus your proficiency bonus thanks to Hexblade's Curse. Meaning that in total, that round, assuming they fail their save against your telekinetic shove, they would take 15 d4 plus 34 damage. The great thing is that even if they make their saving throw against that telekinetic shove, and, and with our decent intelligence, most enemies are going to fail more often than not. Again, there's no need for you to roll here, Will. The DM rolls to make that save, right? So fingers crossed that as long as you're not touching the dice, the enemy will fail their save. But even if they don't fail, you've still done Cloud of Daggers damage to them on their turn, and you don't suffer any disadvantage on your magic missile spell if they're all up in your business, no matter how close they are to you, right? Because there's no attempt to hit with magic missile. It just hits only damage they might avoid is a second helping of Cloud of Daggers. And of course, you know, they could just decide to run away from you rather than move up towards you, further away than five feet from your cloud. And so to that end, talk with your companions about the tactics that you're trying to do here and see if they can't help you sort of box in the enemy that you're targeting here in the Cloud of Daggers so they can't get more than five feet away from it if possible. Anyway, we are assuming, as always, best case scenario, so yes, I'm assuming that they're within five feet of that cloud of daggers. Adjust the numbers accordingly if they're not. Thus, against an enemy with a plus zero to their strength save, that's the only thing that's going to matter here, you would do 68 damage on average, and against an enemy with a plus two to their strength save, which is a little more typical for this level, you would do 66 damage on average. Okay, fine. If you're Will Wheaton, you're gonna roll a one on all of those d4s. So it would actually be 47 and 46 damage respectively. But that's still really good for rolling nothing but ones. And for everyone else, it's about 20 damage higher on average, and that's very good. In fact, when compared to other burst or Nova damage builds that I've done, it is upper half of tier one when those other burst damage builds are attacking low enemy armor class. But then it doesn't take very long before this becomes better than any other Nova build I've done to date, at level six anyway, as the enemy AC goes higher and higher because the vast majority of the damage we do just happens, regardless of the enemy AC or saving throw. And it's also about a 50% increase in damage versus simply using Hexblade's Curse and hitting them with two blasts of magic missile on round one, like you do with the traditional nuclear wizard build. Yes, it takes an extra round to set up, but I think it worth it so long as you feel relatively confident that you'll be able to move enemies back into the cloud even once or twice throughout the encounter. And in case you don't know, I put all of these numbers and graphs and comparisons into spreadsheets and you can see them in the video description. All right, at level seven, you are packed with the possessed crossbow now complete. We're going back to our study of the arcane and we're sticking with wizard the rest of the way. So as a wizard four, you get your first ability score increase or feat. 
I think the most important thing we can do, even though neither Magic Missile nor Cloud of Daggers technically benefit from a higher intelligence score, is to bump our intelligence here and cap it at 20. Our Telekinetic Shove does benefit, obviously, as it increases the, the difficulty check that enemies have to save against, and not to mention, of course, all the other wizardy things that we might want to be doing. Speaking of that, maybe I'll mention here, as I often do, we are, yes, with this build, focusing on strong single target burst damage, but as with all wizard and spellcaster builds, what makes you really fun and awesome isn't necessarily the damage that you do, right? Or at least it's not just that. So of course you should be throwing out web and later hypnotic pattern and fireball, etc, etc, when the situation calls for it. Use all of those tricks in your bag, not just the pew pew ones. Pew pew! And so at level eight, we'd be a wizard five. And yeah, speaking of which, now we get third level wizard spells. So of course you should pick up the usual suspects, your fireballs, your hypnotic patterns, your fears, your flies, etc. But there is one spell in particular that I feel you really need to have for this build because what is the greatest weakness of this build? The shield spell negates magic missile straight up. So this build is so easy to counter now, right? Hmm, but what is the greatest weakness? weakness of the shield spell. I would say that it's almost always cast at the first level and as such is very easy to counter itself with counterspell. Now sure, the enemy may cast shield at a high level spell slot to try and avoid getting countered, but even then your counterspell still has a chance to succeed and even if it doesn't, you've forced a high level spell slot out of your enemy spellcaster that they just used to cast the shield spell, which gets no additional benefit by being upcast, right? Huge win in my book. Another way that an enemy could counter magic missile, of course, is to try and counterspell it, but you can always try to counterspell their counterspell. So counterspell is really the best way to deal with both of the potential like shutdown options that the enemy may have against you with this magic missile focused build. But I mean also, how many enemies do you realistically fight in a given day that have access to shield and or counterspell? If it's more than once in a while, you're fighting a lot more evil spellcasters than I do in my D&D campaigns. At level nine, we would be a wizard six and evocation wizards at this level get potent cantrip. Um, this is a nice little feature for us to take advantage of outside of our nova round because we are burning a lot of spell slots during that nova round. Potent cantrip tells us that when a creature succeeds on a save against our cantrips, they will still take half damage. That's honestly really quite good, especially for Will, as he doesn't want to be trying to roll to hit an enemy with a firebolt cantrip, for example. I'm guessing he would much prefer that the DM be rolling a saving throw for the enemy. And Toll the Dead is the highest damage cantrip in the game anyway, outside of a buffed Eldritch Blast. And it's based on a saving throw, and thus benefits here from potent cantrip. So now, Will, you're guaranteed to at least do some damage if you want to on your turn outside of your Nova round. Yay! All right, at level nine, time for another damage report. So for our Nova round, the only things that have changed are that our proficiency bonus has increased, meaning more damage from Hexblade's curse, as well as our telekinetic shove difficulty check, right? Our intelligence has increased, meaning that we're more likely, again, to succeed on that telekinetic shove. And we have three third level spell slots that we could potentially use to upcast both Cloud of Daggers and Magic Missile, though you should probably save at least one or two of those third level spell slots for other things like counterspell, hypnotic pattern, fireball, etc. As always, we're just exploring what's possible. And so against an enemy with a plus zero to their strength saving throw, you would on average do 109 damage. And against an enemy with a plus three to their strength saving throw, you would do 106 damage on average. Okay, compared to other Nova damage builds now, some of them have made bigger strides by comparison, so we're a little bit more middle of the pack now compared to you know, those other burst damage builds until you get into the very, very high enemy armor classes that we're probably not gonna see a lot of at this level, I don't think, but still, damage is very solid. We broke the centennial barrier, so we're happy about it. At level 10, we would be a wizard seven and we get fourth level spells. 
fourth level spells are fantastic, but I don't know that there are any that I'd say you kind of have to have for this build because like others that we've been highlighting, they just work every time without needing to roll anything, right? I mean, I guess maybe Fire Shield, uh, which functions similarly to Armor of Agathis, right? In that it just does damage to an enemy when they hit you in melee. But if we do that, now the build is starting to look a lot like the Thornlock. Um, which was a crazy and I thought hilarious uh, build that you should check out if you haven't. It was all about returning damage to an enemy when they hit you. Anyway, with fourth level spells, just you know, pick your favorites. Um, in fact, let me know in the comments what you would take here, I think. Uh, what am I missing here at fourth level spells for this character concept? At level 11, we would be a wizard eight and we get another ability score increase or feat. And you know what's crazy? It took me 74 episodes before I even once recommended taking what might be the most universally loved and hated feat in the game. The one that perhaps is most oft banned at tables around the world, <laughs> the lucky feat. I don't know why I don't often think about this feat, to be honest. It's clearly very powerful. I think it's probably just the aversion that I tend to have toward limited resources, as I'm in the middle of a build that focuses on blowing limited resources to great effect. I'll try to think about it a little bit more often in the future, but for this build in particular that I'm building for my good friend, Will Wheaton, <laughs> we're not actually friends. Yet. I'm just going to manifest that out into the universe and see if it doesn't come to fruition. I think Lucky is mwah, perfect. So for those who don't know, Lucky gives you three luck points per day. And then whenever you make an attack, an ability check, or a saving throw, you can spend one luck point to roll an extra d20. And you can even wait until after you've made the first roll to decide if you want to spend a luck point and roll again. Now, that alone is pretty great, although knowing Will, he's just going to roll two ones in a row, right? What makes this feat really great for Will is the second part of the lucky feat, and it is this. When someone else makes an attack against you, you can roll a d20 and decide if they use their attack roll or yours. And since you always roll ones, that's like a guaranteed critical fail for your enemy, right? Three times a day. Definitely perfect for this build. At level 12, we would be a wizard nine and we get fifth level wizard spells. For fifth level spells, I think my favorite, both in general, actually for all wizards, and especially for this build, is Wall of Force. It doesn't do damage, of course, but it is one of the best control spells in the game. And again, it just works. No save, no dice, just Bam, surrounded by an invisible wall. It requires both your action and concentration, so obviously no more Cloud of Daggers if you decide to use this, but oftentimes this very powerful control spell is way more valuable than doing like extra damage to a single enemy, as it lets you do an invisible dome or sphere with a 10 foot radius or 10 10 by 10 panels that you can shape as you like, potentially trapping multiple enemies behind an invisible force field, essentially. And unless they can teleport or have the disintegrate spell, they are stuck there until the spell ends. At level 13, we would be a wizard 10. And finally, we get the piece de resistance, empowered evocation, that thing that we have been striving towards for so long. So empowered evocation tells us that we can now add our intelligence modifier to one damage roll of any wizard evocation spell that we cast. So for a spell like say Scorching Ray that fires multiple rays and you make separate attack and damage rolls for each, you would add your intelligence modifier in damage to one of those rays. But with an evocation spell like Fireball or say, I don't know, Magic Missile, you're only rolling one die and all the darts do that much damage, right? Right. So now on a cursed target, we're adding our proficiency bonus from Hexblade's curse and our intelligence modifier from empowered evocation to every single dart for an extra 10 damage per missile. That's fun. 
And best of all, there is no limit to how often we can do this. It just has to be an evocation spell. So now for our damage report, we've received another bump to our proficiency bonus, gained fourth and fifth level spell slots, and most importantly, we can add our intelligence modifier to each magic missile dart. Because of that, and because Cloud of Daggers is not, unfortunately, an evocation spell, we would actually be best off using our highest level spell slots for Magic Missile now, and a lower one for Cloud of Daggers if we have to choose. Thus, for us, exploring what's possible, not necessarily what's recommended, you would do Cloud of Daggers at the fourth level, and then one Magic Missile spell at the fifth level, Action Surge, one magic missile at the fourth level, giving you a total of 13 total missiles that would hit for 1d4 plus 11 each, yowzers. And thus, against an enemy with a plus zero to their strength save, we would do 222 damage on average. And against an enemy with a plus four to their strength saving throw, it would be 217 damage on average. We have broken the bicentennial barrier for our Nova round, and that actually remains true even if, for some insane reason, you run into an enemy with a plus 15 to their strength saving throw. You'd still do 203 damage on average in that case. That's awesome. All right, coming down the home stretch. At level 14, we would be a wizard 11. Now that we have empowered evocation, part of me would really love to do some additional multiclassing to add some things to try and increase our burst or nova damage. And well, because I really love multiclassing, but the reality is I just don't think that there's anything out there that will make us more powerful than just staying with wizard here, both for the higher level spells naturally and also for the level 14 evocation feature. So that's what we're going to do. So we would get now level six wizard spells. Um, I don't have anything in particular to recommend here that we take for this build necessarily at six level spells. So again, pick your favorites. And again, I would be curious to know if you think there is a spell that works particularly well for this concept that I'm forgetting about. At level 15, we would be a wizard 12 and we get another ability score increase or feat. We should probably do something to shore up our defense here, I think. So I would suggest like resilient wisdom to improve our wisdom saves or maybe bumping our constitution for both better health and better constitution saves. But actually, I think of all of them, I might go Warcaster here. We, we don't need to worry about the hands full thing that you know, Warcaster sort of overcomes, but getting advantage on our concentration checks would be really nice. And I love the idea of being able to cast spells as an opportunity attack. As is, you know, it's going to feel a little bit bad on this character when an enemy just decides to walk away from us, knowing that nothing bad is going to happen to them if they do. With Warcaster, we could heap like another magic missile on them if we wanted to, if they think they can just walk away from us. Don't you walk away from me when I'm fighting you. Get back here. The nerve of some enemies. At level 16, we would be a wizard 13 and we get seventh level spells. And seventh level spells really start to get into the world bending, crazy powerful realm of things. So lots of good ones to choose from. But I actually have three that I think work potentially particularly well for this character concept anyway that you know they just work so force cage naturally it's it's basically an upgraded and improved wall of force that's overgeneralizing but anyway but then what about power word pain I know a lot of you don't like the power word spells in in fifth edition and I get it putting that if they have fewer than 100 hit points contingency on there is a real bummer because as a player we typically don't have a lot of ways of knowing how many hit points a creature actually has and if they're above the threshold then you've just wasted a really high level spell slot but if you do feel confident power word pain would reduce a target's move speed to 10 feet give disadvantage on attack ability and saving throw rolls except constitution saving throws and it has to succeed on a constitution save before it even attempts to cast a spell they don't get to save against it initially anyway it just works so long as they have fewer than 100 hit points why not just hit them with a seventh level super magic missile for 121 damage you might ask i don't know maybe you already used hexblade curse on someone else so magic missile wouldn't hit as hard Okay, I'm reaching here. The third seventh level spell, and probably my favorite here for this build, is Reverse Gravity. So with Reverse Gravity, as long as there's nothing 
fixed in the environment that a creature can try to grab onto. You just reverse gravity in a huge area, 50 foot radius, so 100 feet, right? And everything, everyone in that area just falls up. If there's no ceiling, they just hang 100 feet in the air. If there is a ceiling, they hit it as though they had fallen into it. Uh, taking 1d6 damage per 10 feet that they fell, no save, release the spell if you want to, and they just fall back down, taking the same amount of damage. Fun times, both for control and damage, and again, it just works so long as there's nothing nearby that's fixed that they can make a deck save to try and grab onto. So don't use it if the enemy is next to like wall sconces or tree branches or something like that, right? And then finally, for us, at level 17, we would be a wizard 14. And man, I so rarely get all the way to like a capstone ability of a subclass. And this is a fun one. We get overchannel. So with overchannel, if you cast a spell of first through fifth level, you can deal max damage with it instead of roll the dice. Did you hear that, Will? Now you don't even have to roll for damage. Woohoo! Now, if you do this more than once per day, though, you take 2d12 necrotic damage for every level of the spell that you cast. Yikes. So the question is, do you take that 65 average damage to the face on your Nova round so that you can deal two max damage magic missile spells? Well, not so fast. So remember, with Magic Missile, most of our damage is not coming from those D4s, but from all of the things that we're piling on top of each dart, right? Proficiency bonus from Hexblade's Curse and Intelligence Modifier from Empowered Evocation. Overchannel only works on spells of first through fifth level, and even though Magic Missile is a first level spell, when you upcast it, as when you upcast any spell, it effectively becomes a spell of whatever level spell slot you're using. So you couldn't cast it at, say, the seventh level here and take advantage of overchannel. You're capped at a fifth level spell slot and overchanneling magic missile twice at just a fifth level spell slot would actually do less damage than just casting magic missile on a hexblade cursed target using our sixth and seventh level spell slots. And doing that has the added benefit of not taking half of our health away too, <laughs> which by the way would most certainly cause us to lose concentration on Cloud of Daggers among other things, among potentially getting us killed. Now, of course, yes, with my route, you're burning your one sixth and seventh level spell slots, right? So sure, you have to decide if that's worth it. But if we're just talking pure numbers, we get more mileage out of sixth and seventh level magic missiles during our Nova round than we would out of two overchanneled fifth level magic missiles. But guess what? I've got some great news. We have another spell that we're using during our Nova round. It's not an evocation spell, but overchannel doesn't require it to be an evocation spell. So yes, we could absolutely use overchannel here on Cloud of Daggers to really give ourselves a nice damage bump. Now, you might want to save over channel for something like a fireball instead. Dealing max damage in a big 40-foot area is quite potent. But I'm just going to assume that we're using it here on Cloud of Daggers for number crunching purposes. So the question is this, would overchannel apply to the spell for as long as it lasts, right? Cloud of Daggers lasts for a minute. Would it do max damage for that entire minute? every time an enemy took damage from it? The answer, according to a tweet by Jeremy Crawford, seems to be yes, rules as written, but maybe not rules as intended. Now, since I try, sometimes unsuccessfully, to stick to rules as written when I can, I'm going to say that yes, if you cast over channel on Cloud of Daggers, or another concentration spell that does damage for that matter, it would do max damage for the duration of the spell. And frankly, it makes a lot of sense to me. You are over channeling that spell. It's the most potent version of that spell that you can summon. It would seem a little weird to me that the spell would somehow become less powerful after the first six seconds go by. And I mean, since we can only do this once per day without taking massive damage, I don't find it particularly unbalanced. Um, you and or your DM may disagree, of course, and that's fine. I'm going to assume that we're enjoying the benefit of max damage from Cloud of Daggers when I crunch the numbers. And honestly, if we're casting it at the fifth level, 
we're talking the difference of 15 damage on average every time the enemy takes Cloud of Dagger damage. Maybe 30 damage on average per round at most. Not nothing, for sure, but at 17th level, once per day, not exactly game-breaking, in my opinion. And so, for our final damage report then, we would now be, potentially, getting 17 magic missile darts from a 6th and 7th level casting of the spell. Our proficiency bonus has capped at 6, and we're theoretically casting Cloud of Daggers at the 5th level, and with over channel, it just does straight 40 damage each time it hurts our enemy. Hooray for Will, who has one less damage roll to worry about getting ones on. And so, against an enemy with a plus zero to their strength saving throw, we would, on average, do 334 damage. And against an enemy with a plus five to their strength saving throw, we would do, on average, 322 damage. Pretty amazing. It doesn't quite beat out the best of the tier one Nova builds when they're targeting low and middling enemy armor classes, but once you get up into those really high enemy armor classes, it beats out everything but the Critlander if, okay, if the Critlander is going up against humanoids, which of course becomes increasingly rare the higher the level that you're playing at. And so, final thoughts. So when you average all of the damage numbers against all enemy, well, saves in our case, they come out with a final tier score of 185, very comfortably in the middle of tier one compared to other burst damage builds, uh, just above the Vengeance Paladin and right below the Flamethrower. I had a lot of fun with this one conceptually, um, and I hope you guys did too. Even if you were already familiar or even just semi-familiar with the concept of the nuclear wizard, for what it's worth, I, I actually spent a lot of time originally trying to make this work as a sustained damage build instead of a burst damage build, trying to find more ways to like more reliably shove enemies back into that cloud of daggers, even if they were more than five feet away. You know, going Dao Genie or maybe Scribe's Wizard using uh, turning magic missile damage into bludgeoning with like like the crusher feat doesn't work because with crusher you have to do bludgeoning damage on an attack and the beauty of magic missile for this build especially is that it's very specifically not an attack right and then i was trying to get it to work with the scribes wizard again but then with a tempest cleric because at tempest cleric level six when you do lightning damage you can push an enemy right and so we could with Scribe's Wizard, we could potentially convert Magic Missile into Lightning Damage and then push a target, but it required a big Cleric investment that I think just ended up being overly complicated and not really worth. It just came online a little too late. Anyway, I was trying for hours, <laughs> actually, to not do a Nuclear Wizard build here, but in the end, I decided, you know what, creating a sort of known character concept really kind of gets back to the spirit that I started the channel with in the first place. And yeah, I was really curious to see if I couldn't make some improvements on the basic concept and then also see how it stacked up against other builds. Needless to say, I was pleased with the results. Maybe not particularly surprised, but I think this build is absolutely perfect for those of you out there who love D&D, but feel particularly cursed with bad luck, or who just feel like bad rolls take a lot of fun out of the game. The vast majority of the damage you put out with this build, at least on your Nova round, is all but guaranteed. And for some people, including me actually, that's actually a really cool and fun idea. The rest of you can go roll your wild magic sorcerers and have fun with your chaos. For me, I'll take dependable every time. And hey, if you think dependable is boring, I've got some great news for you. This character is still mostly a wizard. Go blow something up on your Nova round and then let loose during the rest of that combat encounter with everything else in your huge wizardy bag of tricks. In that regard, this build lets you have your cake and eat it too. So that's the episode for the week. Thank you guys so much for watching. I love you dearly. Um, you're just the best and I appreciate all of your support. So please, yeah, like and subscribe and consider joining the channel as a member if uh, you're interested in, in throwing some additional support our way. I hope you have a fantastic day, a great week, and I hope to see you soon and that you check out some of the other content on the channel. And yeah. Take care. Bye.
Let's do this. Bow, 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 bow. Well, don't say, don't say that. Uh, the higher level you're, that you're playing, the higher the level, the higher. These are the tales of an area, tales of an area. When those other burst damages, <laughs> how do I say that? Uh, oops, I better check that. Oh, come back. 